This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, last year across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Mary Pass, because the truth will set you free. July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com, where we ask questions and question the answers. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, very test member, for making this program possible. Tonight's special guest will take us around the world. I know many of you know him, and I'm always impressed with what he has to say. He explains what really matters these days in such an eloquent manner. He's not only well-versed in geopolitics, but also in the non-mainstream topics we discuss here. It is very rare to find someone who can walk all these paths, and I truly identify with him. I'm referring to Ian R. Crane. We will discuss the London Olympics, and just as Bill Cooper discussed the possibility of the 9-11 attacks, Ian believes that 2012 Olympics may be setting the stage, not only for a false flag event in London, but it will ripple globally. Perhaps nothing will happen, but the fact we have been connecting dots all these years leads us to conclude the convergence of so many events, such as the global economy, conflicts in the Middle East, the European Union imploding, to name a few, make this event worthy of our attention. Ian R. Crane will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, you know what to do. Go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately and will have access to everything we have to offer, all in CD audio quality. And you may have heard me mention our very special Manticore forum a few times. You may think this is just another forum, 
Well, I'm proud to say that that is not the case. I personally make sure the same Veritas goal of finding the truth is applied there. The only difference is that there we all work together. People around the world converge to discuss the topics that matter. And believe me, I can confidently say that our four members are a few steps ahead. You have a question? There is someone there who can answer it. And you will never feel alone or out of place. Join the forum and find out. And thank you to all our forum members. Your participation and contributions really make a difference. For this and everything we have to offer, subscribe today. And to get in touch with me, just go to our website, veritasradio.com and click on the contact button. During the morning of September 11th, 2001 and July 7th, 2005, there were terrorism drills taking place in New York City and London, respectively. Is it a coincidence that terrorist attacks took place? Why is it that Israeli security firms were responsible for the security of the World Trade Center, Fukushima, and other locations in which a security breach or disaster have occurred? Did you know that an Israeli security company blacklisted by the European Union will be allowed and be responsible for the security of the 2012 London Olympics? In addition to the concentration of sporting talent and global media, the London Olympics will host the biggest mobilization of military and security forces seen in the UK since the Second World War. More troops, around 13,500, will be deployed than are currently at war in Afghanistan. The growing security force is being estimated at anything between 24,000 and 49,000 in total. Such is the secrecy that no one seems to know for sure. During the games, an aircraft carrier will dock on the Thames. Surface-to-air missile systems will scan the skies. Unmanned drones, thankfully without lethal missiles, will loiter above the gleaming stadiums and opening and closing ceremonies. Royal Air Force Typhoon Euro fighters will be flying above. A thousand armed U.S. diplomatic and FBI agents and 55 dog teams will patrol an Olympic zone, partitioned off from the wider city by an 11-mile, 80-million-pound, 5,000-volt electric fence. And did you know that Nick Pope, former head of the British Ministry of Defense UFO desk, has said via the mainstream media to keep an eye on the skies for saucers during the Olympic Games? And have you noticed how the 2012 Olympic logo reads Zion? With the world in financial turmoil and at the brink of war, all that is needed is a tripwire event to get us closer to the end game, the final agenda. And to discuss this and much more, Ian R. Crane is coming up next. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Bambergers, and you're listening to Veritas.
This is John Perkins, and you're listening to Veritas. Ian R. Crane is an ex-oil field executive who now lectures, writes, and broadcasts on the geopolitical webs that are being spun, with particular focus on U.S. hegemony and the New World Order agenda for control of global resources. Primarily, Ian focuses his attention and research on the geopolitical arena, but has a deep personal interest in folklore, mythology, and the cosmological belief systems of ancient and indigenous cultures. In fact, it is Ian's research and understanding of these systems and beliefs which provides him with a unique insight into the unfolding global drama, providing the catalyst for humanity's evolution into a new plane of existence, Homo Luminous. And to learn more about Ian R. Crane, visit his website at iancrane.com. And directly from the United Kingdom, I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Ian R. Crane. Hello, Ian. Welcome. Hi, Mel. How are you doing? Mel, before you go any further, can I just um, correct you on the website? Because if people go to that website, they're going to get someone completely different. Please do. Don't tell me. Did I miss an R? You did. It's Ian R. Crane. It's I-A-N-R-C-R-A-N-E, ianrcrane.com. Great. We'll put it on the website as well. Well, Ian, <laughs> as I was telling you offline, I'm so overwhelmed in a positive way because I usually try to focus with each guest. But with you, you deal with so many things, geopolitics, some of the topics also that we deal with in this show. And I would like to start with some of the things that are of relevance right now. In a few days, because this show is airing in July, the London Olympics, 2012 Olympics, are, are going to happen. What's your take on, on, on what's going to happen there? Even... And this may be unrelated to your, your area of expertise, but the former Ministry of Defense UFO desk person that Nick Pope says for everybody to be looking up, keep an eye on the skies for saucers during the Olympic Games. It just sounds false flaggish to me. Well, it's very interesting that Nick Pope should um, come out and make this observation. I, I know Nick uh, very well. Nick is a regular speaker at uh, UFO conferences, yes, um, and of course his claim to fame is that he manned the UFO desk, uh, according to his own account, he manned the UFO desk at the Ministry of Defense in the, uh, the, the 1990s. Um, uh, he left the civil service, I think, some seven or eight years ago, and uh, has basically made a career out of talking about his uh, experiences manning that desk and uh, Nick has also made a reputation for himself because he is an absolute defender of all government orthodoxy. And uh, so, I mean, Nick absolutely believes that whatever events or whatever version of events governments put out, that must be the truth. And anybody who uh, questions those versions of events is just a rampant conspiracy theorist. Now, what is very, very interesting is that Nick was actually in the audience uh, at a presentation that I gave at the ExoPolitics conference in uh, Leeds in the north of England last August, August 2011. Now, um, at that uh, event, I gave a three-hour lecture. It was divided into two parts. It's actually all up on YouTube. Um, if, if people... Um, uh, search for the Nephilim disclosure and transhumanism, they will find uh, that uh, presentation in, I think, about three parts. Now, during the course of, of that presentation, I 
also reiterated some of the uh, content of earlier presentations from 2006 and 2007. And in 2007, at a presentation that I recorded in July of, uh, of that year, I uh, presented the hypothesis that the London Olympics would be used as an event to stage something of such enormous audacity to accelerate the opportunity to bring about global governance and ultimately uh, the one world government. Now, it wasn't the only observation I made. I made a number of other observations. And pretty much everything else I discussed in 2006 and 2007 has, has come to pass. And I don't claim any originality for the uh, hypothesis on a fake alien invasion. In fact, um, we can actually, uh, and I think thanks to Bill Cooper, we can actually trace the first official reference to the idea that a fake alien invasion could be used to accelerate the globalist agenda right back to 1917. And the, uh, the suggestion was, was put forward during the, uh, the negotiations or discussions that eventually led to the formulation of the League of Nations, which of course was um, an attempt to bring about some kind of global cooperation uh, to prevent another uh, um, catastrophe like the First World War from reoccurring. Uh, of course, as as we know from history, it didn't work too well. <laughs> Just 20 odd years later, we went into World War Two. Um, so, yeah, we, we roll the clock forward 20 odd years and we have the Second World War. And then we have um, uh, the discussions that eventually lead to the creation of the United Nations. And then uh, in the 1960s, we have um, a, a think tank that was convened at Iron Mountain. And the, the results of this think tank came into the public domain in 1967 when a document was, was, was published, which is called The Report from Iron Mountain. Yes. Now, of course, many people uh, in the establishment try and dismiss it as a forgery, whatever that might mean. But, of course, it is absolutely remarkable uh, how much of the content of, of that uh, report has uh, proven to be quite uh, prescient. But one of the observations made during the course of the discussions was that one of the ways in which humanity could be controlled through fear was through the threat of uh, an alien invasion. And in fact, in the course of the discussion, it was actually observed that this event would probably have to be staged, which of course wasn't um, a rejection of the whole extraterrestrial um, meme, but simply an observation that they couldn't be relied upon to turn up on cue. And and then, of course, all through the 80s, we had uh, Reagan's reference uh, in the UN and in a number of other speeches uh, during his uh, Star Wars era when he made the observation. I think he said something along the lines of, I often wonder how quickly mankind would unite if there was some you know, uh, incredible threat from outer space. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, then, of course, you know, we we roll out round to um, uh, the project for a new American century and the publication of rebuilding America's defenses in September 2000, exactly one year before 9-11. Uh, you know, when they're talking about the need for a new Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And of course, then one year later, we have the incredible piece of Hollywood, which uh, is known as 9-11. 
it's definitely a piece of Hollywood. Uh, it was brilliantly perpetrated, uh, but it is pure Hollywood. And of course, the you know the event that I believe or think that there's a very strong possibility that uh, may be staged at the London Olympics will also be pure Hollywood. You know, computer graphics have come a long, long, long way over the last decade. Uh, you know, when we, in fact, I used the um, trailer for from Independence Day, which is a, a film that was released in 1996. Mm-hmm. And I, I used the trailer to sort of illustrate my point that if you simply take a piece of Hollywood and package it as news, then a significant chunk of the population will take it as fact, you know, just just like they did on on 9-11. And even when anomalies become uh, increasingly apparent, you know, the, uh, the vast majority of people are so conditioned that they refuse to allow themselves the the opportunity to actually consider that uh, what they were told was just a complete crock of whatever um you know and they they will literally tow the party line and nick pope the former um, mod uh, ufo desk team leader um absolutely you know maintains that 9-11 was uh, an event that occurred exactly as per uh, the u.s government version now, now, Nick was at my presentation, as I said, last um, uh, August. And in fact, another national newspaper, a UK national newspaper, The Sun, which is a tabloid, but it is the most widely read newspaper in the UK. It's uh, allegedly read by 13 million people every day. And they ran an article uh, on page 28, but they ran an article which uh, referenced my presentation and my hypothesis that uh, um uh, the Olympics could be the backdrop for a fake alien invasion. And Nick at the time absolutely dismissed it. So this is outrageous. This is just rampant, uh, uh, scaremongering, fearmongering, and of course, uh, just a, a complete uh, conspiracy theory. And here we are, you know, uh, six weeks before the start of the Olympics, and we have the very same individual going to the, the UK media, this time the Daily Mail, and, and saying that people should keep their eyes on the skies because it could be a prime opportunity for extraterrestrials to show themselves. So uh, Nick, um, who would be absolutely first in line to get a role with the BBC or one of the other national TV stations to commentate on this event. So, uh, you know, he obviously is making sure that um, the media know that he's on call uh, should there uh, be the need for his uh, services. Now, I don't know for sure, of course, that there's going to be a fake alien invasion. My real point, the real point of of, uh, raising this into the public awareness over the last five years is to encourage people to stay extremely vigilant because anything Anything that happens during the course of the London Olympics, which isn't part of the uh, formal agenda, is likely to be a staged event. And it is likely to be being staged for the purpose of accelerating the agenda towards global governments, uh, governance. I mean, we are already in the UK the most surveilled nation on the planet. I mean, there, there's something like... Um, uh, four million cameras in operation around the UK 
I mean, in London, it is um, uh, estimated that any individual arriving in central London is likely to appear on 400 different cameras from the time they arrive in the city to the time they leave. Now, um, at the London Olympics, you know, the, the event is going to be the most securitized event in the in the history of the Olympics. You know, um, we have been told that there will be 49,000 troops in plain clothes and in, um, in battle dress in and around the uh, Olympic zone. An 11 mile perimeter has been created around the, um, the main Olympic area in the uh, eastern side of London. And, and this 11 mile perimeter can be hermetically sealed in a heartbeat which would, of course, effectively create an enormous concentration camp. We've also been told that there are anti-aircraft missiles being mounted on the roofs of apartment blocks in the vicinity of the Olympics. We have a, a, a helicopter uh, carrier, helicopter gunship carrier in the Thames. We have um, a sonic long-range weapon located in the Thames on a barge. So... You know, basically, and I have to say, by the way, that the main security company, the uh, the main security contractor for this event is a company called G4S, which is um, um, a, an amalgamation of two companies, Group 4 and Securicor. Um, one is British, one is Danish. Now, G4S has effectively been blacklisted by the EU uh, because of its relationship with the Israeli government. I was just going to say, don't tell me that he has any relationship with the Israelis. Well, exactly, of course. Um, and, I mean, this is absurd, as, as, as obviously you're, you're ahead of me already. Um, but uh, G4S have been blacklisted by the EU because the Israeli government have contracted G4S as their private security company to effectively um, uh, staff their political prisons and also to um, to effectively patrol the uh, uh, the border areas between Gaza and um, Israel and the West Bank in Israel. Now that doesn't seem to have perturbed the um, the British Olympic Committee, but I can tell you that questions are being asked in the British Parliament about why it is that uh, G4S have been awarded this contract when they are effectively blacklisted by the EU. But as as you have alluded to already, of course. The absurdity of this is that Israeli security links are a common denominator in so many events over the past decade. Of course, it was an Israeli security company that was responsible for security at the World Trade Center yeah. uh, on 9-11. It was an Israeli security company that was responsible for security at all the airports where the planes took off on 9-11. It was an Israeli security company that was responsible for security on the Madrid subway on um, March the 11th, 2004. Fukushima? Well, hang on a second. Let's go through chronologically. Okay. Because it was an Israeli security company that was responsible for uh, maintaining the surveillance cameras on both the London buses and the London Underground on uh, the events of 7-7. And as, uh, as you rightly have acknowledged, it was an Israeli security company um, who were responsible, and in fact, who just a month prior to the uh, the Fukushima disaster had uh, installed surveillance cameras inside the, the reactors at uh, Fukushima and on the perimeters. So, 
the bottom line is that somebody would actually have to be almost off their trolley to engage any security company that has any connection with Israel because their track record sucks. Exactly, exactly. If they have failed so much in the past, why continue using them? Unless there's an ulterior motive. Well, unless, of course, um, of course. it is an ulterior motive. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, on the basis that um, it is certainly... Uh, my belief from my research that each of the events that we have just mentioned was in fact a false flag. Um, and of course, by having um, a tame security company um, uh, in your pocket, then basically you can make sure that whatever it is that you want to happen actually happens and is not impeded in any way. And by the way, Ian, a few days ago, I was dealing with another guest similar topics, and the voice of that guest was completely wiped out from her system. No explanation whatsoever. So today, we're introducing new equipment, redundant equipment, in case this were to happen. We, we record in multiple places, so just, just an FYI. But one last thing about Nick Pope. Uh, he always, I've heard him say that once you are with the government, you are always with the government. I remember that he mentioned, too, that he was a commentator during Desert Storm in 1990 and 1991. And we all know that that, was, that war was very staged. And another thing, 2012, when you look at it, you probably have heard about this, it almost reads like Zion. Have you read that? Have I read it? Uh, Mel, I believe <laughs> that it was myself who put that into the public domain Good. in July of 2007. That uh, the logo, the Zion logo was released by um, Wally Ollins, the, uh, the logo designer, and it, and it was announced um, by Seb Coe at the British Olympic Committee in June of 2007. And uh, if you look at, in fact, um, it is part six of my Fool Me Once presentation, which is um, uh, freely available on YouTube. But you, funnily enough, it's the part that's been hidden. You actually have to search very specifically. For Ian Crane, Fool Me Once, part six of seven. Because if you just Google part of the, the, uh, the rest of it, you'll get all the other parts, but not part six. And it's in part six where I make the, I, I unveil the, uh, the Zion interpretation of the, um, uh, the London Olympics logo. And you can actually hear the audience gasp uh, as I unveil it. And, and just a few minutes before, unveiling the Zion interpretation, I had um, revealed the hypothesis about the fake alien invasion. And this follows very much on from the presentation that I had given the year before in 2006, when I presented um, my uh, information, uh, and a lot of it I had drawn from the work of a guy called Adrian Gilbert, on London effectively being established as the New Jerusalem, i.e. Hmm. Zion. So, um, yeah, that uh, that I believe. In fact, I've been asked the question by um, uh, one of the British national uh, newspapers. I was asked the question if I was aware of any earlier release of the uh, the Zion interpretation of the logo prior to the um, recording that I made in July of 2007. And I will tell you the same as I told them. I'm not aware of any earlier um, release of that information. Now, just to go back on something you said there about Nick Pope, I don't think Nick was in the media 
or in any way, shape or form involved in public life during the first Gulf War of, uh, of 91 and 92. Um, I, I'm, I, he, I'm not to say he isn't, but I'm certainly not aware of that because at the time he was a very junior civil servant. Now, at that time, um, and you know, I share this with uh, you and your listeners, I was one of the first civilians to go into Kuwait at the end of hostilities. I was working uh, for an oil field services company for Schlumberger. In fact, I was with Schlumberger for almost 20 years. I left Schlumberger in uh, 1998. At the time, I was working in the Middle East. I was based in Dubai. And I went into uh, Kuwait, um, I believe it was about the last week of March. Uh, of 1991 and my job along with uh, three colleagues from the um, uh, oilfield services industry was to look at the logistics that we would need to bring into Kuwait to deal with the uh, 600 or so whatever it was uh, burning wells now at this time I was 34 years of age and up until this time I had never had cause to question the official version of events on anything i mean it just never occurred to me that you know there would be any reason for there to be a version of events other than that presented by um governments and their and the mainstream media but when i went into kuwait uh, you know i was aware of course that um we had been given a heads up back in october of 1990 and this is of course three months before Hostilities began in, in January the 16th, I believe it was, of 1921. And we were given the heads up that we should start thinking about what resources we might need to bring to bear in the event of a major firefighting exercise. And at the time, I asked the question and I was told, well, you know, based on intelligence, um, uh, there's a possibility that uh, the Iraqi forces may uh, actually set the the wells alight. Now, of course, that is exactly what transpired. The wells were indeed set alight. But when we were touring around the southern oil fields with our military driver, it became pretty apparent to me that the official version of events wasn't supported by the physical evidence that I was witnessing firsthand on the ground. And basically that physical evidence was that the young Iraqi conscripts were still in their foxholes around the oil fields in what looked like defensive positions with bullet holes in the backs of their necks. So it looked to me as though the Iraqi conscripts had effectively been assassinated um, whilst in the in their foxholes, um, because this part of the, the desert in Iraq is just is, is not sandy. It's just sort of flat, very open, and it's like a sort of um, a, a rocky gravel type surface. And I mentioned to the driver i said you know what i said this really stinks i said you know how is it that the iraqi troops set the wells alight and these guys in the defensive positions have bullet holes in the backs of their necks and my driver looked um somewhat embarrassed but didn't say anything anyway uh, a couple of days later i was sitting in the mess at the of the radio company in akamadi and a guy in um, American battle fatigues, interestingly, with no markings, none, no markings whatsoever. They were just battle fatigues. And he, he came striding up to me. He clearly knew who I was. And he said, uh, Yuri and Crane. And I didn't say anything, but he said, I've been here and you've been casting some aspersion about who set them wells alight. 
<laughs> I didn't say anything, but uh, he uh, he then turned. He said, boy, he said, that's the kind of thinking that can get you into a whole lot of trouble. And you best be keeping your mouth shut. And then he turned to walk away. And as he turned to walk away, he looked back over his shoulder and, and you know put his hands out to his side. And he said, Ian, what the fuck's the matter? Aren't we paying you enough? Well, I'm telling that story fairly glibly, of course, after um, you know, 21 years. But at the time, I was absolutely crapping myself, basically. And I didn't sleep very well for the next three or four days until I actually was back on the plane, uh, until I landed in Dubai. And, uh, of course, you know, what was going through my mind is if, if these guys would, you know, basically perpetrate an event where they have set the wells alight and then blame it on the um, the Iraqis, you know, what are they going to do if they think that there's some guy who might just blow the whistle on it? Well, of course, I didn't blow the whistle. I just got on with my job and eventually I managed to get a good night's sleep. Um, but it was the start. I mean, it was absolutely the start of my realization that there was an alternate reality uh, to the one that the vast majority of people um, uh, latch on to based upon what they see and hear from the mainstream media. And, th and that actually started my, my journey. Um, it, it got off to a fairly slow start because I was you know, pretty busy doing what I was doing within Schlumberger. Um, and after my time in the Middle East, I moved back to uh, to Paris and then ultimately to Houston. And I was based in Houston, Texas for uh, for three years between 1995 and 1998 uh, before I eventually left the the oil field. So uh, by the time I left, clearly I had a very different um, view of certain, uh, shall I say, historical events. Um and and actually, after leaving the oil field, I then decided to pursue my interest of mythology. And I went and you know spent some time studying Egyptian mythology. And then I went down to Central America. And I was actually in Central America studying Mayan mythology and cosmology when the events of 9-11 occurred. And the irony is that all the time that I was in Central America, uh, where I was working um, alongside uh, some uh, U.S.-based archaeologists, and I was basically saying to them that George Bush, George W. Bush, was clearly being groomed to take center stage for some very, very significant event. I had no idea what the event was going to be. But if you remember, Mel, after he was uh, awarded the U.S. election by the um, democratic process of the Supreme Court ruling five to three in his favor. Sure. Uh, thanks to pressure brought on them by daddy. Um after he was sworn in on the White House lawn, basically, he spent all his time either on the golf course or in, on his ranch in Crawford. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize outside the U.S. is that the U.S. president actually doesn't have very much to do unless he's messing on the, uh, the global stage, because each state in the, in the U.S. actually has more autonomy than any of the nations in Europe right now. Although, of course, that's being eroded. I, I'm, I'm very well aware. Yeah, there are, there are more federal districts than sovereign states these days. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but at the time, you know, Bush was obviously, I mean, first of all, he wasn't very worldly. He demonstrated that very ably. But uh, by the time 9-11 occurred, which, of course, was 
almost scripted by Zbigniew Brzezinski in um, his book, The Grand Chessboard, which he wrote in 1997. And then by the uh, the PNAC group, Project for American, a New American Century, in their Rebuilding America's Defenses report published in September 2000. And, and you know, we had it. And so I was sitting in Belize. I was actually in a place called Placencia in Belize watching uh, CNN um, on the satellite channel there and, uh, you know, watching the same as everybody else. And I was just totally gobsmacked. But I have to tell you, and I, re- I do regret my reaction, but when the first tower fell, and of course it was WTC2 that was the first tower to fall less than one hour after being hit by a plane, supposedly, um, and less than one hour after, after whatever occurred, but after the explosion, and the tower just collapsed. I mean, it didn't just collapse. It basically uh, just disappeared in a pile of dust. And, and I, I literally, and I, like I said, I do regret my immediate reaction, but I, I applauded and I said, this is it. This is the event that I've been talking about for the past four or five months. This is going to be the event that launches George W. Bush onto the world stage. And I said, you know, basically, all bets are off as to what comes next. And, um, you know, of course, the rest, as they say, is uh, is history. But, you know, what's occurring right now is not a series of random events. I mean, you know, we have the global financial meltdown. Um, you know, we have the um, abominations of illegal wars in both Afghanistan, Iraq and, of course, Libya. Um, although Libya is no longer a war. I mean, that was uh, pretty short and and, uh, and sharp. Uh, I think the Libyan people are beginning to realize what a nightmare they've unleashed upon themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, you know, we've also got the uh, extension of this into Syria and, of course, ultimately the target of Iran. And, and the primary objective, of course, is for the uh, socio-psychopathic global corporatists to effectively control all of the uh, resources on the planet. Um, you know, they're playing a game of monopoly. And, and everything that's occurring right now is absolutely inextricably interlinked and interrelated. You know, this, this game of global monopoly, um, and it's like it, it, we're in the final round. I mean, Mel, I'm sure you've played the game of monopoly, yes? Well, of course. Okay, have you ever finished a game of Monopoly? <laughs> after a few fights and after a few boredom of uh, spending almost days, yes. <laughs> okay, and uh, did you win? I, I I won a couple of times. I did actually. Okay, on the occasions that you won, were by any chance you the banker? Of course, every time. Well, exactly. You see, so you know this is where uh, you know the game absolutely mirrors what's going on right now, um, and of course. Most people who have played Monopoly have actually never finished a game. You know, like you say, after a few fights and, uh, you know, maybe a few days after Christmas or whatever, after Thanksgiving, um, you know, they, they give up and simply add up uh, all the assets that they're sitting on and whoever has got the most assets is declared the winner. That's but, of it. course, that is not the purpose of the game. The purpose of the game is in the name, and that is Monopoly. And the purpose of the game is that one player is left standing – and that one player has total ownership of everything on the board. And, and that's exactly what's going on right now in the global economy. You know, the, the global corporatists 
and their henchmen, the banksters, are literally going for total ownership of the board. And basically, they've pretty much achieved it in Greece, in Ireland, Portugal, well on the way to uh, to getting their, their way in Spain and Italy and then France and the UK and the US are not too far behind. And and unfortunately, um, the vast majority of people, of course, have not yet been affected. Uh, it is probably about 15, maybe 20 percent of, of the populations that have been affected. So it's not the majority. And unfortunately, the reaction of the majority of people is, you know, I've just got to keep my nose to the grindstone. I've just got to keep working 25 hours a day, eight days a week, you know, 53 weeks of the year, uh, because if I don't keep my nose to the grindstone, then I might end up living in a tent in a park on the edge of the city, having had my uh, my house taken away from me through foreclosure. When in reality, of course, what really should be happening is people actually should be starting to take a little bit of interest in what's occurring here, because the reality is they're next. And and these guys have got the bit between their teeth and they ain't going to stop until they have effectively destroyed the Western economies. And it's, you know, once again, it's no coincidence that we have Rio plus 20 going on right now. And and, you know, Agenda 21 is, is effectively you know, 20 years old now. And Agenda 21, which is the agenda of the eco Nazis, the eco fascists, uh, which is effectively about um, you know, destroying um, what we recognize today as uh, as Western civilization, all on the grounds that it is unsustainable. Well, of course, it is unsustainable in the way it's being played out right now, which is why there has to be an. And a, uh, an absolute fundamental shift in the paradigm, because if we continue in the current vein, then unfortunately, um, the end result is not going to be very pretty. And by the way, I don't mean to, to discuss Linkbog anymore, but regarding the, the correction, and I, re I had remembered this because he actually told me in person, and, and from his bio, he had many different postings and had undertaken a series of jobs within the Department of Defense, including work in the Joint Operations Center during the Gulf War, where he was a briefer in the Air Force Operations Room. Well, I'll be for me to question Nick, but he'd have been about 20-something at the time. So, uh, you know, he, he would have been, um, he would have been uh, in a relatively junior role at that point. And that's why I thought maybe he's referring to the new Gulf War, but but who knows? But uh, what do, I have a, a a globe right here that let's just imagine a globe full of lights. Depending on the gas, some lights turn on, but with you, Ian, they're all on because I can go anywhere. You mentioned a, a few interesting things: George Bush, George W. Bush. When the towers turned to dust that day, I started looking into history, and you probably know this: the Reichstag fire, nine eleven. Fatherland Security, Homeland Security, the Enabling Act, the Patriot Act. The Nazi yep. script continues. Oh, ab absolutely. And of course, I think, uh, I mean, the, in the U.S., you have uh, an outstanding researcher in the guise of Jim Mars from, oh, yeah. um, from Texas. And, you know, there is, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind and certainly not in the mind of Jim Mars, because uh, you know, he certainly documented it very, very well. But the, the Fourth Reich is very much um, alive and well. 
and you know there there are certainly uh, those in in the UK um, who and I, when I say those, I'm talking about people who actually are operating at, uh, at quite a senior level of government who have a very, very strong concern that what we are seeing right now is effectively the Fourth Reich looking to establish global dominion economically as opposed to militarily. So you know, having tried it militarily in the 1940s and um, and of course there have been you know many um uh works published in the US which link the bushes with the nazis i mean in fact i believe that uh, prescott bush um was actually taken to court uh for uh, for financing the the nazi the um armament build up oh. so you know the, the links are very well documented the same with uh, alan dulles and 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 many others in, in that era so you know, there are concerns, if you like, that these people are simply uh, the extension of the National Socialist agenda from from the 1940s. They're just going about it in a, in a much more subtle and I have to say much more effective fashion. I mean, you know, they've achieved economically with Greece what they certainly could not achieve militarily. And speaking of George Bush, now George H.W. Bush. Speaking of Prescott, remember when he was allegedly shot down in the Pacific? Do you think that was real or could it have been staged to for Prescott Butch to gain sympathy because of the legal proceedings he was going through at the time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, they, they, come on, these guys were the masters of the propaganda. No. And uh, and of course, they had all the right connections. I mean, you know, Prescott Bush was skull and bones, um, you know, as was uh, Pappy and as was um, W, you know. So look, uh, Skull and Bones has had the ascendancy of the, the hidden hierarchy, you know, since about the 1930s. Um, and, and Skull and Bones, of course, being limited to, um, uh, you know, to a single establishment <laughs> uh, and Scroll and Keys being their um, the next contender. But, you know, the way they mop up through the rest of the uh, Ivy League universities is, is Phi Beta Kappa. You know, I mean, basically, the bottom line is that uh, you can look at any individual at any point through the 20th and into the 21st century in the U.S. administration. And if they went to Yale, there's a pretty fair bet they're skull and bones. If they went to Harvard, there's a pretty fair bet they're scroll and keys. If they went anywhere else, it's a pretty fair bet they're Phi Beta Kappa. And Bush. Reagan, March 1981. You remember the, the attempted assassination of uh, Reagan and the night before, uh, Neil Bush, son of the, of, of, of Bush, uh, was going to have dinner with Scott Hinckley, the brother well, of, of John Hinckley. Well, and of course, there is something other, uh, something else uh, about that event as well, because on the, uh, the previous day, there had been an exercise and the exercise was based on um, an event where the president was assassinated and the vice president was uh, sworn into the White House. Now, and of course, what else also interesting about that event is that um, Reagan claimed that he didn't feel any pain until he was bundled into the car by his Secret Service um, uh, bodyguard. And, and at first, he actually thought he just cracked a rib from the, the bodyguard sort of effectively jumping on top of him as they got into the back of the car. But, you know, there was never an investigation 
as to the uh, um, the origins of the bullet that was removed from Reagan. And there is certainly much supposition to uh, to put forward the case that he was actually shot by his bodyguard. Because, you know, if you, Hinckley was actually the wrong side of the car door. You know, once again, we have the sort of magic bullet scenario. And supposedly the bullet that went into Reagan, you know, ricocheted off the car door. It's actually much more likely that uh, when you take a look at all of these supposedly random events, like the fact that the day before there was an exercise where basically everything had been put into to motion for uh, an event where the president was assassinated and the vice president sworn into office. And then coincidentally, the following day, uh, Reagan um, uh, is uh, uh, shot. And as you rightly say, Hinckley's brother was having dinner with um, one of the other Bushes. You know, you couldn't make this stuff up. No, absolutely not. And even in a local level, you you may remember, you can't perhaps remember the last year, uh, our congresswoman here was shot and almost killed, and many people supposedly died. One of them was a judge. I recently read the autopsy report. The judge was shot in the stomach, but the actual cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and he had received life threats days before this happened. So these false flag events could be local and it could be on a global scale. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is that there are organizations and there have always been organizations, of course, uh, all the way through history that uh, can be engaged to remove um, opponents. And, um, you know, that's an unfortunate fact of life. And uh, uh, it's why... You know, those who have the, the courage to, to speak out, um, you know, need to do so because that's a massive part of their protection. You know, um, and we have to we have to recognize that this is always a possibility. But, of course, we all hope to God that it doesn't happen. And you mentioned the word transhumanism. It's great to, to find somebody who discusses geopolitics, but goes on to, onto the other side to transhumanism. The, the, the merger, and even singularity, the merger of, of, of computers and biology. Do you see this happening soon? Well, it, just interestingly, we were, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine about the, the Paralympics and how the Paralympics is actually sort of almost becoming um, an opportunity to display how man and machine are, are combining in, yeah. um, in ways that, you know, could never even have been considered 25, 30 years ago. But there, there is no doubt. I mean, you know, we see academics who openly talk about um, a situation where a woman is given the choice at the time of the birth of a child of having the child fitted with a cerebral implant. And, and I was watching one interview with a, uh, a neuroscientist who said, you know, and why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't she have him have the child have the implant when it would uh, give the the child uh, increased brain capacity um, and uh, increased uh, thought uh, capacity, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But in in reality, of course, what we're doing there is moving away from humanity into a bastardized version of humanity because the one thing that uh, in most cases these implants are geared to do is to enhance the lockdown into the left brain. And, and of course, the thing that absolutely scare is the crap out of the 
socio-psychopathic corporate globalists is the fact that for whatever reason, and we could speculate for a long, long time, but, you know, uh, the evidence is all around us, that humanity is evolving. And and they've known this. I mean, Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote uh, 40 odd years ago when he when he wrote uh, Between Two Ages, the uh, the technotronic era. And much of what he wrote in that book, I think he took a lot of the information from the report from Iron Mountain, which leads me to believe that he was either a participant or once the report came into the public domain, he liked the content. So he decided to plagiarize it a little bit. But um, in the course of that book which is remarkably prescient because a lot of the things he talks about in his technotronic era is uh, is actually occurring today. But and I paraphrase, but, uh, you know, he basically makes the observation that one of the challenges for Western governments will be to keep their uh, citizens locked into consumerist materialism, preventing them from realizing who they truly are. And, you know, what is happening right now and. I, I know I'm uh, speaking to uh, to an audience that um, you know was, is is sort of probably ahead of me on this and you know ready to acknowledge it. But what is happening is people are starting to realise the shallow existence of consumerist materialism um, and starting to step out of the left brain and actually give the right brain an opportunity to sort of kick in. And um, you know what we're what we're seeing, of course, is the fact that. Um, as I alluded to earlier, you know, people are focused on the treadmill, you know, get onto that treadmill, keep working, you know, 25 hours a day, eight days a week or whatever, slavery, whatever it takes, whatever it, it is, it is, it's economic slavery, you know, and Mel, one of the things that, you know, has, uh, uh, fascinates me is that when people meet in the social environment for the first time at a party or even a bar or whatever, you know, one of the first questions that normally gets asked by one of the parties is what do you do Mm -hmm. what do you do and of course we normally respond the normal response is you know what our job is or what our career is well isn't it fascinating that we actually identify ourselves by what enslaves us by what takes away our freedom by by what we spend a significant chunk of time doing to be able to earn the money to actually have the basics, i.e. a roof over our head and food on our table. You know, this is a classic example of left brain lockdown. Absolutely. And what you just said is so important. That what do you do? Because that immediately, what is it? It's upmanship. Do I have to worship you or do you have to worship me? It's almost like you want to know where you stand. Well, exactly. And of course, even before you ask the question, the left brain has already been going through this automatic process of determining whether it thinks that you're more handsome or more beautiful than that person, whether you're better dressed, whether you drive a bigger car, whether you live in a bigger house. It's already trying to establish this hierarchy. It's already looking to determine whether you are superior or inferior, you know, and and therefore deciding, you know, how the conversation is going to go. But fortunately, fortunately, more and more people are realizing that there is actually way more to life than um, you know what they get from the left brain lockdown um and and of course the thing is that neuroscience is becoming very very interesting right now because you know it, it's becoming very divided between the materialists and the non-materialists and of course the materialists are those who would advocate that there is nothing that cannot be explained by reductionist Newtonian science. 
and, and, and they also spend a lot of time and effort in trying to demonize the non-materialists. Now, the non-materialists are those who actually are prepared to acknowledge that there are experiences that cannot be explained by reductionist Newtonian science. And of course, what is also very interesting is that the non-materialists don't waste time trying to counter the um, uh, the attempted demonization from the uh, uh, from the materialists. You know, but they've got more important things to be doing. And and of course, you know, what I'm talking about here is the fact that you know we, in the course of our lives, have experiences which we can't explain. They defy logic. But nonetheless, we can't deny the experience. But those experiences are, are not only usually benign, they are actually very important in terms of trying to give us an opportunity to recognize that the left brain doesn't have all the answers. You know, the left brain is is the part of our anatomy, if you like, that is the receiving organ, the antenna for this physical, empirical, material reality the right brain um which is you know a completely different organ the right brain operates outside the space-time continuum you know some people you know they might not necessarily use the same terminology as me and i'm not saying for one moment that i have the definitive version here but uh, you know and some people might use the term heart or heart right brain or even higher self or whatever let's not get hung up on the uh, on the vocabulary let's you know try and uh, embrace the the um uh the experience here because once we acknowledge that the right brain can actually contribute can actually help us to uh achieve and and bring about things in our lives the creation process if you like that the left brain cannot even begin to comprehend. I mean, it's so far beyond the bounds of comprehension of the left brain that, uh, you know, you, you just waste time and energy even by trying to uh, break it down in, in sort of reductionist terms. But at the same time, the absolute experiences that people are ha having, which um, uh, defy this explanation, are increasing at an absolutely phenomenal rate of knots. And, I, you know, I've been spending best part of uh, the, the last six months incorporating um, you know, this left brain, right brain um, issue into my workshops. I spend half the day looking at what's going on in the geopolitical arena. And then the second half of the day looking at what's going on in terms of, um, you know, the, the neuroscience and the explorations that neuroscientists are doing into the capacity of our right brain. And the reason I'm doing this is because, it, as I said earlier, if we look at the existing paradigm, this unsustainable paradigm of total global economic meltdown being driven by a few socio-psychopaths who are determined to take total ownership of the planet to the exclusion of, of all else, you know, it's not a very pretty picture. But I don't believe that these guys actually have the capacity to engage their right brain. And that's what they're trying to shut down in us. And they're doing this through sort of a multiple agenda. I mean, it, it starts you know, a few seconds after birth with the vitamin K vaccination. But then, you know, 26 preschool vaccinations. Rudolf Steiner said 100 years ago that a vaccination would be found to shut down what he then termed the, the spiritual experience. 
you know, you've got to remember the, the time in which he was making that observation. So, you know, everything that was non-material was uh, was effectively classed as, uh, as spiritual. So, and then we've got GM foods, we've got fluoride in the water, and of course fluoride is the fastest way to calcify the uh, the pineal gland. And the pineal gland is, is, in my opinion, is a key to this. It's the antenna. It's the antenna of the right brain. It's the antenna that gives us the opportunity to connect into all that's going on out there. You know, I've got in, in my hand right now, I've got a, a 3G dongle, right? That 3G dongle in isolation is just an inert piece of plastic with some interesting electronics inside. When I plug it into my computer, it gives me the capacity to tap into the physical manifestation of the Akashic record. It's called Google. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That that dongle is effectively, in this case, an allegory for the pineal gland. You know, once we actually connect the pineal gland, once we effectively fire it up. And we give it an opportunity to start connecting with what the ancient Greeks called the aether, with, with what's all out there. Then, you know, we have an opportunity to sort of bring about solutions to everything that we're experiencing right now, which aren't even in the human consciousness yet. You know, that's why I don't think, you know, we necessarily need to be looking for a definitive as to how we get out of this global mess right now. We need to keep looking. We need to keep challenging we need to keep pushing the envelope we need different people to be doing it in different ways and eventually eventually we will find what it is that you know we need we'll find that key that takes us into another economy for want of a better word because this one is in the final days and and i think you know what we what we see going on right now is the uh, global corporatists are fighting a rearguard action yeah, they know. I think they know on one level that the game is lost, and and they're just basically going for broke and seeing how far they can push it before, effectively, they they lose one way or another, because you know humanity is not only pissed off at being treated so abysmally by um, a, a handful of people who perceive themselves to be the rightful rulers of a global fiefdom, it's also developing the capacity to challenge them on a completely different level and you know it was einstein who said that you know you're not going to solve problems using the same thought processes that caused the problems in the first place and i think that is the situation that uh, you know we find ourselves in right now and i think it's an incredibly exciting time you know it's um it may sound a bit perverse but consider the possibility that those who are driving this pernicious agenda you know and, and spelt out in in words literally of you know one or two syllables on the georgia guidestones you know reduce humanity to 500 million in balance with nature you know how arrogant yeah. you know this planet is more than capable of determining how many people it can and can't support and if there's too many it'll do something about it and it doesn't need it doesn't need our help now consider the possibility that although I'm not suggesting for one moment they know it on a conscious level, but that they're doing us a massive favor, you know, because for each of us, it's only when we are experiencing massive personal trauma 
in in our personal lives you know whether that's career related finance relationship health whatever and whether it's directly with us or with somebody close to us but it's only when we are going through these experiences that we have an opportunity to truly grow because the rest of the time we're not living we're existing you know we're existing in a uh, a construct a construct that would have us get out of bed in the morning switch the tv on make breakfast and you know get the kids off to school go to work come home switch the tv on again make dinner watch tv through the evening you know and all the time we you know we're just sort of being fed bullshit through you know fox news or whatever else is that we're uh, we're watching and then we go to bed and then we repeat the same routine the following day day in day out and maybe we get a bit of respite to go fishing or whatever or whatever it is we do on a, on a weekend but that's not living that's existing you know that's fulfilling the role of the um of, of the compliant consumer until such time as they decide that uh, you know they're going to take from you everything that you thought you had accumulated you know that different uh, arena but i mean the the property bubble was deliberately created you know to get people into massive amounts of debt because of course the more debt you're in the more compliant you become well it's but, it's it's production consumption consumption pleasure and yes add debt to it and exactly so you know when but when all of a sudden when you find yourself in this mess you've actually got to stop and think and and you've either got to fight it and in most cases you can't So you've got to go deep within yourself. You've actually got to explore within yourself and look for solutions that are maybe beyond the capacity and capability of your normal logical thought process to uh, to come up with. And that's when you start to maybe give the right brain a chance, to give the right brain and the heart connect. And of course, I think it's it's in California, isn't it? The Heart Math Foundation have been researching this um Uh, capability and capacity for over 20 years but you give you give another part of you a chance because the left brain has basically been screwed it, it's it's got into an, a hole so deep it can't find a way out and so it says okay may, maybe maybe we have to give the right brain the heart an opportunity to come into play here because you know the right brain has the cap- capability to connect way beyond the space-time continuum of this limited dimensional construct that we operate in on a day-to-day basis. And that, that is when we start to experience the magic. There's nothing, there's nothing mystical about this. I mean, unfortunately, of course, it's been the domain, if you like, of the secret societies and the mystery schools, mainly because the church uh, dominated the, um, you know, the orthodox thought process of the day. Today, we have an opportunity We just have to put in a bit of effort, you know, and there's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of research that's out there. People just have to develop the appropriate level of curiosity to be to able to uh, go and explore uh, this. And then, of course, once they start to have experiences that can't be explained by normal logic, don't deny them, you know, because everybody has them. And most people are scared to talk about them for fear of being labeled as a nutter yeah. or crazy. And if, you know, if they go talk to their doctor about them, the doctor's going to prescribe them with antidepressants or, you know, God knows what else, which of course is all part of the agenda. That's you know, why we've got kids being, 
um, uh, prescribe Ritalin uh, on an outrageous level, both in the US and in the UK. And these are all drugs that shut down this right brain capability and keep people locked into the left brain construct. So, you know, my point is that, you know, it may look as though the world is going to hell in the handcart. But in reality, in reality, consider the possibility that what's going on here is that humanity is actually being given a kick up the backside. It's being given an opportunity to get off its butt and actually take uh, and play an active role in its own evolutionary process. And I believe that, uh, you know, this time next year, we're going to be in a very, very different space than that which we're in right now, one way or, one way or another. And we have to take our one and only intermission, but let me ask you a question. You mentioned something important. We were a consumerist society that, that's enslaved. I don't think that slavery was actually abolished. It was uh, transformed into the yeah. 925 matrix. But we have uh, something that goes attached to it, planned obsolescence, keeping the people buying and, and buying again. But I think planned obsolescence has transitioned from buying physical goods into human plant obsolescence we have a lot of the vaccines and and all this industry do you think that plant obsolescence is now taking over humans too absolutely in fact there is an article in the british mainstream media and this was um i think published uh well it was certainly this week i think it may have been tuesday it's a double page spread and it's claiming that 100,000 people a year are effectively being killed by the national health service because they are elderly and they are just simply not being prescribed the drugs. And somebody in the health service is simply, effectively, practicing euthanasia. Mm, mm, absolutely. Well, we have to take one and only break. Uh, Ian, tell us once again how to get in touch with your work, know where your presentations are coming. Yeah, everything is on my website. It is Ian R. Crane, that's I-A-N-R-C-R-A-N-E, ianrcrane.com. Uh, we have it linked on our website. What a fascinating topic, uh, folks. We have so much more to discuss. We'll discuss a lot of what's happening around the world and some practical advice that Ian may be giving you for the future. This is Mel Fabregas. I'm here with Ian Crane. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Nick Pope, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.